tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. There's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Boy, have we got a reading today. It's one of those unpleasant readings. Oh, you know what I didn't talk about? Well, I'll talk about it after we pray, but I, 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 I totally forgot to, to mention about uh, the master serving the slaves at table. But we'll, let's pray and then, and then the, 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 the oh yes, oh don't, yeah, let's pray. Then I'll say all those things. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle them in the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit that shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. Oh, that's the wrong, I slipped into the wrong prayer. It's been one of those days. <laughs> by the power of God. No, I, I, I think we're still on the prayer to the Holy Spirit, aren't we? Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit their right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. <clears throat> Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell. Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. And Lord, I ask you to, I'd ask your prayers for a very dear friend of mine who's got some worrisome news from the doctor. I ask you to, to to grant healing, Lord, and work your perfect will in all of our lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Um, that said, you know, as we sit here, <laughs> as as the cheese slowly slips off the cracker of my mind, well, the uh, a couple things I wanted to mention. One of them, of course, is that tomorrow, Friday, uh, the Pope has asked us to, to fast and pray for peace, which is a wonderful thing. And maybe I can throw in my own suggestion along with the Pope's. Um, uh, maybe say an extra rosary for peace, because I really do think it's a powerful weapon. And um, also, I in the Gospel a few days ago, um, Jesus told what I believe was kind of a funny story about the master who puts his slave in charge and the slave begins to, to uh, uh, eat and drink and with, with the drunkards and, and beat his fellow servants. Well, when the master come home, comes home, he's going to be in trouble. Uh, but blessed that servant who the master finds hard at work, he will 
wait on he will wait on that servant. That actually used to happen in the ancient world among the Romans at least. There was a, a feast of fools in which the slaves were waited on by their masters. It was everything was supposed to be topsy turvy. I don't think the Jews did that, but they would have been aware of it because of the presence of Greeks and Romans among them. So that that idea that that uh, the master will will wait on them. Um, that actually did happen in the ancient world. So I thought you might want to know that. And um, I guess that's about it. Well, let's get to the reading here. I, Jesus, th- this reading from, from Luke, the 12th chapter, the 49th verse, very disturbing. I've come to set the earth on fire and how I wish that we're already blazing. There is a baptism with which I must be baptized. The word baptism in Greek is just, it just means to immerse. If you, if they'd had coffee and donuts in the ancient world, you would have baptized the donut. It was that common word. Uh, a person who was grieving was said to be baptized in tears. Uh, a person who was uh, drunk was said to be baptized in wine. Uh, it was that common a word. So there's an immersion with which I must be immersed. And how great is my anguish until it is accomplished. He was talking, I believe, about the, the spiritual battle, which was uh, the Last Supper, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the crucifixion. It was it was a, a spiritual war. Um, then he says something very upsetting. Do you think that I've come to establish peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Jesus came to establish division? I thought Jesus was nice. Well, there's no charismatic virtue of nice. I'm sorry. Uh, um, or no charismatic gift of nice, nor uh, fruit of the Holy Spirit nice. There's kindness, which really means usefulness in Greek, but uh, no, no virtue of nice. I, I'm not saying don't be nice. Be, be nice. Be courteous. Be hospitable, but be honest. Um, speak the truth, but in love. So, what's going on here? If you think of the word peace in Hebrew, it's a little bit. Oh, by the way, <laughs> the word. I'm reminded of a joke when I think about the meaning of the word peace. So this this old fellow's in the hospital, and the nurse is fluffing his pillow and getting him all squared away. And she says, are you comfortable, sir? And he says, I make a good living. That's the joke. Never mind. But the, uh, um, that's peace. That's what peace means in, in Hebrew. Shalom. If you ask someone, how are you? It's Maha Shalomka. How's your shalom? It means your welfare. I think of that wonderful old hymn, It is Well With My Soul. That's the idea. It, it's well with my soul. God has given me what I need in the material world and what I need in, in the spiritual world. It's well with my soul. That's peace. And that's what Jesus is supposed to do for us, make us all warm and comfy and happy. Not so much. No, there's going to be division. A household of five will be divided. Uh, three against two, two against three. And that's the, that's the world in which we're living. You know, we, we, we talked the other day about, about somebody wrote in and said, I've been asked by my best friend to attend his daughter's wedding, uh, to her girlfriend. Well, no, you can't, you can't be, you can't be a witness to that because it's Jesus defined marriage as a relationship between a man and a woman. The, the word in the text is not wife, it's woman. And, and um, he defines marriage. Uh, when he says, for this a man leaves his father and mother, that's exclusivity, and clings to his cling, that's permanence, woman. He defines it as a relationship between a man and a woman. 
and the two become one flesh, not one spirit, one flesh. Where do you become one spirit? In your children. Even those marriages that cannot have children are, in a sense, about children because of the stability of relationship that they create. So Jesus defines marriage as a permanent, exclusive relationship between a man and a woman that is open to life. And, well, that's how Jesus defines it. And when when you ask me to participate in a wedding that is not meant to be permanent, you know, uh, uh, this is my eighth wedding, I'd love you to come. Uh, well, you don't believe in the permanence of marriage. Uh, well, I'd like you to come anyway. Oh, for the sake of the family, you have to be supportive. In other words, you're asking me to deny Christ. You're asking me, I- I'm, I'm a follower of Christ. And if he's to find marriage this way, I'm supposed to slap him in the face and say, no, 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 Jesus is wrong about that. And for the sake of family unity, I will deny Christ. You can't do it. You can't do it. Well, you can do it. (laughs) But Jesus said, he who denies me before men, I will deny before my heavenly father. Good luck with that. So Jesus, the very fact of Jesus in our times, he is a sign of contradiction and he is a source of division. Well, that's not right. You must make a decision for Christ or a decision against him. That's that's this text of scripture. Now let's go on to to the first reading, which oddly enough really does fit in. Oh, this line, the wages of sin is death. Well, I've heard it said that yeah, the wages of sin is death, but if you take out for taxes and inflation, it's really just a tired feeling. It's another joke. All right, moving along. I'm joking. This is, let's get, uh, let's get serious here. Thank you. Thank you, Bart. Finally got the joke. Slow on the update. Okay. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your nature. I wonder, you know, my theory about the letter of the Romans, it's addressed to the Jews and the Greeks in a way to discuss, uh, to say, how can you get along? It's a Talmudic uh, uh, sort of reasoning process that says, we're all descendants of Adam. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, so I think he's talking about, uh, I wonder if he isn't addressing the moral situation of the Greco-Roman world. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your nature. For just as you presented the parts of your body as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness for lawlessness. In other words, you gave yourself over to lawlessness just so you could be lawless. Um, this kind of describes our times, too. That, that We are lawless. We are without law. I can do it. I'm free. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm an adult. I can do what I want. You can't tell me, you know, get your rosaries off my ovaries, that kind of thing. Uh, you can't tell me what to do with my body. Well, it's not your body. It's somebody else's body in your body when you have an abortion. You can't tell me what to do. Now present them as slaves to righteousness for sanctification. Uh, this is a most interesting line. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free from righteousness. You were free from righteousness? Well, again, um, to uh, risking tediousness, I wanted to find righteousness again. That that um, I remember a conversation I had with Rabbi Lefkowitz, uh, in which we were talking about uh, righteousness. Tzedek, uh, is it tzedakah? And he, well, tzedakah is charity 
tzedak is is righteousness. I'd have to look it up, but that that that's the root of righteousness. And the the highest compliment that a Jew can pay you is to call you a tzaddik. If you're a tzaddik, you're a righteous man. Joseph, the scripture says, was a righteous man. He was a tzaddik. Um, that's, as I said, the highest compliment that a Jew would pay you. It means a man whose deeds are overwhelmingly righteous. And I remember Rabbi Lefkowitz saying to me that God was the ultimate tzaddik because all his deeds were righteous. And I remember reminding him of that. And he said, I didn't say that. (laughs) I said, I thought you did. I didn't say that because that would be anthropomorphizing God. You can't say quite what God is, uh, but, you know, what God is not. So uh, the righteousness of God, yes, but... but, uh, No, but I mean an anthropomorphizing of God. This is life. Yeah, but I think Rabbi Lefkowitz would say no, and we would say yes, that, that... it is all over the Old Testament. But at any rate, I think he said it. So when God willing, I meet him in glory and, and I know he loved God and he loved, you know, I don't want to go into that, but we'll trust God for that. Uh, but uh, I'll say, you said it. I know you, we can look back to the archives. Moving along here, though, uh, the idea of, of, of righteousness. What is righteousness? It is the very nature of God. That's what righteousness is. And God wants you to be like him. He wants you to be to be like him. Well, how can we be like him? That's the whole point of the letter of the Romans, that we have a new template, not just the righteousness of the law, 613 uh, boxes that we must fill in, the which we must check off. But we have the Torah come to life. We have the law of Moses come to life in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the visible image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, get to know a Jewish carpenter who was born in a barn and died, died under arrest. Um, that's what God is like. This, this, well, that's kind of odd. Well, there's a wonderful description of Jesus in the Bible. There is Oh, what? Yeah. Galatians, the fifth chapter. Now the fruits of the spirit are these, Love, sacrificial love, peace, patience, joy, long-suffering, generosity, humility, uh, self-control. These fruits of the Spirit, that describes the personality of Jesus. And God wants to adopt you. We read that again in the letter to the Romans. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined, not to go to heaven or hell, but to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the first of many brothers and sisters. In other words, God wants to adopt you, and he can't adopt you until you look like Jesus. And and, and that's this whole thing about grace. I, I'm not going to share the story of my collision with the Romanian fellow again. That was the other day. But God gives you things in the in the course of 24 hours to make you look like Jesus. You know, you have all these opportunities to look like Christ and some of them are not so pleasant. You know, it's all grace and it's all beautiful, but it doesn't look or feel beautiful at the time sometimes. So that's what's going on in our lives. And we were free from righteousness, you know, when we were slaves to sin. Well, I'm no longer free from righteousness. God has called me. And and now I have this, this responsibility of righteousness. I can't just do what I want. 
because God has called me and he's called you. We're slaves of righteousness now. And our goal in life should be love and peace and patience and joy. Our goal should be trying to look like Christ. Now, uh, this, I've said this before, but grace is what's given. Sin is what's taken. Adam and Eve, they took the fruit that God had said, no, don't eat that. They took that fruit. And he said, no, I'm not going to obey you, God. She said, no, we're going to take what we want. You know, I've tried to share with you many times that prayer is not getting God to do our will. It's not even getting us to do God's will. It's giving God permission to do his will. That's what prayer is. Well, isn't he going to do his will anyway? No, that's the marvel of this, that we have a humble God who will allow us to tie his hands. You know, Jesus was nailed to the wood of the cross, but in certain representations, you see rope also, and I think it's appropriate. We have no biblical or historical evidence that Jesus was nailed and tied to the cross, but I've seen representations, and that really is, I think, appropriate because we were able to tie the hands of the Son of God. And we tie his hands in our life all the time by saying, no, I want what I want, and you'd better jolly well give me what I want or you're not God. That's not so. It's not It's not how it works. That God, God allows us to restrict him. Doesn't have to, but freely he allows us to restrict him. So grace is what's given. Sin is what's taken. And as, as Cale Clark was saying earlier on in his show, that that... Thanksgiving pleases the Lord. When we find difficult circumstances in our life and we realize that they're God's grace giving us an opportunity to be conformed to the image of Christ, that we should say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for this difficult circumstance. I will trust that it's your gift, your grace. Grace is what's given. Sin is what's taken. And we are we are no longer slaves to lawlessness, but we are slaves to righteousness. We're slaves to the nature of God. You know, uh, another beautiful old song, turn your eyes on Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the pleasures of earth will go, grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Once you have looked square into the face of Christ, well, you're hooked. All right, let's take a break, and we'll be back with letters and and a few comments and a few other things. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Looking for a new job? How about one that offers you opportunities for spiritual, social, and charitable growth? Our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is hiring new agents today. Visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester, an Illinois life insurance society not available in all states. The paid paradise put up a parking lot With a pink hotel, a boutique, and a swinging hot spot Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone The paid paradise put up a parking lot Ooh. 
It is so true. So true. Before I launch into letters, I would like to return to my discussion of the Diocese of St. Dymphna in the state of North Vermont. Um, I don't it's pretty know far out there, isn't it, that diocese? Yeah, it is pretty far out. It's cold, too, in winter. But um, the... It does like what we're going to Mist County <laughs> and uh, uh, where's Bishop Bruce of Burlington? Well, moving along here, that's that's what I should go. But, uh, you know, the, the, this this is for most archdioceses. I've I've seen some dioceses and archdioceses where the seminaries are full and 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 the churches are, are filled with young people. And there's a shameless lack of gray heads, but they're not many. And I think you know, I said yesterday, you know, Studying the problem is like studying fat people to see how to lose weight. Study what skinny people eat. You know, don't don't study me. Study somebody skinny. <laughs> study the voice in my head who is not overweight, let me tell you. But um, I think that, that we really genuinely need to look... We need to define success. What is, I remember in religious education, I defined success for a religious ed program as a program that got an adolescent male to go to church in the summer when his parents were on vacation. That's the successful graduate of a religious ed program. You know, I don't want to cut out the girls. Uh, They tend to be more prone to church going than the boys. Not much more in these days, but when you have an adolescent who goes to church when his parents are away, you've done a good job on that kid. It doesn't happen much, does it? We need to define success. And what is success in an archdiocese? I think success in an archdiocese is, is not measured by numbers, but by conversion. And where you have people who are really committed to the liturgy, and especially young families, I think one of the criteria of success in a parish is do you have a lot of people who really practice what is taught in Humanae Vitae, young people who are open to life? Um, do you have a congregation of, of, of people who believe in life? Um, I, I, I think real attention should be paid to, to, the definition of the successful parish. Uh, and we, we haven't done that. Um, if people are coming to church, it's successful. I don't think that that's the criteria. It's, conversion is the criteria. Uh, are people coming to Christ? I, I heard there's a proverb among the Pentecostals where Christ is present, lives are changed. Is that going on in my parish? But what I really want to talk about in this meditation, this extended meditation on the Archdiocese of St. Dymphna in North Vermont. Eucharistic revival. We're talking about this renewal of the Eucharist. We're going to gear up for this. But I really believe before that, we need to look at the spiritual lives of diocesan priests. Diocesan priests. I I love the diocesan priesthood. I, I became a diocesan priest because for a thousand years and more, the parish has been the vehicle of the faith. It's where you go to meet Christ. And I don't know that that's happening now. 
we are on the edge of real change, real change in the church. And I don't mean uh, kind of adopting the spirit of the age. I think we are on the edge of either returning to what the church means as a, as a body uh, and, uh, or, or losing it completely. Um, when you say church, you mean your parish. That's what, you know, the bishop is wonderful. He comes and visits. The Pope is wonderful. He says great things. But where the rubber meets the road, as they say, it's your parish. At least traditionally, that was the place where you went to share your faith with people who believed, where you went, you brought your kids there to, to absorb Christ and, and to be evangelized. And your contact with the church was essentially your pastor. And um, I, I, I'm sure I've shared this with you, but in 1972, the priest senate of the Archdiocese of Chicago asked Cardinal Cody to petition Rome to limit the terms of pastors. It was assumed that a pastor would die in his parish. And you got he got to know you, you got to know him. He might have been a difficult person, but, well, you got to know him and he got to know you. I would maintain that if a pastor does not know the names of his parishioners, he's failing as a pastor. How do you know, learn the names of your parishioners? By being there a long time and talking to them. The model now is you go from parish to parish to parish to keep all the pie plates spinning, and you don't stay in one place for more than an hour and a half. I'm seriously, you know, in so many archdioceses or dioceses of, 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 of this country, and I don't know if it's true overseas, I bet it is, we have this terrible priest shortage. We think it's a priest shortage, but it's not really a priest shortage. Okay, let me explain that. Looking at the statistics, uh, we have a, we, we have probably more priests in this country per, per parishioner, per capita, than most other countries. But we have all sorts of masses. You know, uh, uh, the priest has to say sometimes five and six masses a weekend in three or four different parishes. Uh, that's wrong. The Eucharist becomes, well, just a matter of, of performance. I, I, I know of what I speak, that a, a priest is supposed to say one mass, one mass a day. He can say two masses a day on Sunday. And if there's pastoral need, he may, he can say more. Well, pastoral need is that in parish one, we have an 8 a.m. and a Saturday evening mass. Parish two, we have the 10 and the 12. Parish three, we have the five on Saturday and the, and the 11 and, and the 9 a.m. So father is driving from parish to parish like some great ping pong ball of ministry. And he ends up saying six and seven masses and, it becomes commonplace to him. How are we going to have a Eucharistic revival unless the priests fall in love again with Christ in the Eucharist? Now, so many good, good, holy priests sacrifice themselves to do this. But I, I really believe it, it's extremely difficult for the priest to have this sense of awe and reverence when he's saying six, seven masses a Sunday. And when he's exhausted from driving 
30 miles here and 40 miles there and 10 miles here. But Father, you can't cancel my Mass. I don't care what you do with the other Masses, but my ma- I go to the four on Saturday. That's my Mass. I think what we need to do is return to the idea of you have one Mass on a Sunday morning. Mass, when I was a kid, was allowed only on Sunday morning. You had to get special permission for a Sunday afternoon Mass. There was no Saturday evening Mass. There was no Sunday evening Mass. But it's so inconvenient. Well, fine. Let it be inconvenient. You know, I'm going to end this. I'm going to talk about this for a while because it's really been bothering me. I I love the diocesan priesthood. And the Mass is the source and summit of our life. But it is not something that we have as a convenience. You know, the, I'm going to end this with a story of the Sudanese martyrs. Most people don't know of the martyrs of South Sudan. But in the 60s and 70s, the anti-Christian government of Sudan decided to eliminate Catholicism and Christianity in general in the South Sudan. And they bombed every single church they could on Sunday morning. But the people kept going to Mass. They would have Mass in the forest. And the government of Sudan would put planes in the air. And if they saw large groups of people headed to somewhere in the forests, they would bomb the forests. It's estimated that two million people died in that that Holocaust. And people don't even know about it. Two million people, it's thought, died because they wanted to go to Mass. And I'm not going to drive 10 miles to Mass and I'm not going to go to Mass because, well, I go to the Saturday after the Saturday night Mass. You put it on Sunday, I can't go, or I won't go. Mass is not a convenience. It's the sacrifice of Calvary. And for us to reduce it to a convenience, and in so doing, to exhaust the clergy so that we have ordination classes of two and one. You know, a priest is meant to be a father to his parish. He's meant to know them, to spend his life with them, and not just be a traveling salesman of religion. I I hope I'm not being insulting, but I'm an old man and have lived a long time in the church, and I really think that we need to examine the spirituality of the diocesan priest and find ways in which we can encourage our diocesan priest to fall in love again with Jesus in the Eucharist, to whom They gave their lives. They didn't give their lives so that they could spend their life in a car and go to meetings. They gave their life to Christ. Okay, we'll we'll um, we'll take a break. Well, let's go to some letters and then we'll take a break and come back with a word of the day. Where's where are my letters? I I really feel strongly about this. You may have noticed. All right, all right. Let's see. Did, Did I do this one already? Um. Yeah, I, I have the question about is Catholicism the only church that has a daily liturgy? I don't think I've heard anybody talk about that, and I, I would like to know if there are others. Um, okay. This is an interesting question. If a priest is, and I again, I'm going to ask for help on this one too. If a priest is not in a state of grace before a Mass that he needs to celebrate, that is a Sunday Mass in a rural community with no other priest available, what can he do? Is he committing a second serious sin? Well, technically, yes. He's committing the sin of sacrilege. Sacrilege is to abuse a sacred thing. For instance, if I drop the Blessed Sacrament, that's not a sacrilege. If I throw it to the ground, that's a sacrilege. So you have to intend a sacrilege. You have to, in, it's a sin, any sin, you must intend the sin. Uh, for a mortal sin, you must have, it must be grave matter. 
it must be, uh, you must know it's grave matter and you must have a full turning of the will. And if a priest, um, uh, um, if a priest, unfortunately, is in a state of sin and is unable to go to confession, unable to find another priest to say that mass, he may feel he is under compulsion to say that mass, which would mitigate the moral culpability of it. Uh, and I think that we also need to understand this. This I, I would like to know if there's a good moral theologian listening. I'd like to know what they would suggest in that situation. Uh, there's no possibility that another priest can say that mass should he go ahead and say it, even though he is in a state of serious sin or thinks himself to be. He did. Oh, what the voice in my head found something. What is that? What did they say? Um, they said yes. Normally, you know, it would be a mortal sin to commit a sacrilege. They said, however, a priest who has fallen into mortal sin but who is unable to make his confession despite his desire to do so may celebrate Mass for the benefit of the faithful without adding a further, further sin of sacrilege. Yeah, and that makes great sense because he doesn't have a full turning of the will. You know, he wants to obey the law, but that would mean many people would miss their Sunday obligation. Now, one can be reassured because of the idea, it's called ex opere operato, Opus is the Greek word or the Latin word for work, and opere means ex opere means from the work, from the work, and then operatus means being done or being worked, from the work being worked. In other words, a bad priest can say a good mass, a bad bishop can ordain a good priest, because it isn't actually the priest or the bishop who's doing it, it's Christ through the bishop. If the priest or bishop intends to do what the church intends, and uses the the valid form and matter. In other words, uses the appropriate oil for confirmation or ordination, uh, the appropriate bread and wine for mass, and intends what the church intends. Christ works through him. Christ can work through bad men. And that's a biblical principle, too. Caiaphas, the high priest, was able to prophesy in his role as high priest, as Scripture says. Uh, uh, it is fitting that one man should die for the nation. So, if you suspect a priest of not being a good and holy man, don't worry about it. It's Christ who is bringing you the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist or whatever, uh, any other sacrament. That's the the teaching, the doctrine of uh, ex opere operato, from the work being done. So thank you, voice in my head, for that. That's great. Okay, let's go here. All right, what time is it? Oh, I got it. I can do another letter. Okay, my family and I were on vacation last week and went to Mass, where before the final blessing, they told us all to have a seat and listen to a guest speaker about final estate planning when you pass away, which was to be followed by a video. I thought this was inappropriate, especially since we hadn't received the final blessing. I thought this should have been an optional thing after Mass had ended. What are your thoughts? Oh... Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Absolutely. And I would, I would say this verges on sacrilege because you have a captive audience and a salesman. Nip it in the bud. Exactly. I remember going to a beautiful, beautiful liturgy, uh, the old, the old rite, you know, the old mass. Um, it was, and it was uh, all souls day and it was, uh, they had an orchestra and a magnificent choir and Mozart's Requiem. It was magnificent. And well, after the Sanctus, uh, a bunch of people got up and left because, of course, um, 
that Mozart didn't write the, the rest of the Mass. He died after, after writing the Sanctus. And, of course, they were there for Mozart, not for Christ. Well, but then the Mass went on, and it was breathtakingly beautiful. And at the end of the Mass, the priest, a good, good man, when his Beretta and his fiddleback vestments and, and the glory that was Rome, he accepted the giant novelty check from the Polish Benevolent Association that had paid for the the uh, the orchestra and the choir. And, you know, I thought in the new Mass, I wouldn't have noticed it. But in the old Mass, it just stuck out like a sore thumb. And it should at the new Mass. Mass is, I said this the other day, there's no such thing as the healing Mass. There's no such thing as the charismatic Mass. There is no such thing as the as the uh, Mass uh, for Peace and Justice. There's the Catholic Mass, the worship of God, the unbloody representation of the sacrifice of Calvary. That's all that Mass is, nothing less and nothing more. And for me to use Mass to make my political statement, to make my theological statement, to make my financial statement, I think is wrong. And I would say that 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 whoever decided to have this salesman come up, uh, a salesman or a politician, uh, coming up before the final blessing, having a captive audience, that was extremely wrong. Um, that's my thought on it, Jennifer. All right. Very good. All right. I think we should probably go to a break, and I'll come back with a word of the day. And we don't forget our Catholic Order of Foresters toll-free line at 888-914-9149, This hour is sponsored by Ave Maria Mutual Funds, where financial goals are aligned with pro-life values and fund decisions are based on investment fundamentals designed to preserve and grow wealth without violating moral beliefs. More information at AveMariaFunds.com. Bottom dollar, well this looks like the end. Oh, how I hate to see you go. Oh boy. Bottom dollar. Yes, here at Relevant Radio, we play both kinds of music, country and western. <laughs> Moving along. All right, let's go to the word of the day. Well, where'd I put it? Oh, is the voice I just said he found it in the bluegrass section? Oh well, the the uh, um uh, the uh, the in the reading today we read again the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This word is interesting because the word for gift here is charisma, charisma. Uh, that's what a charism is. It's a gift. It's an undeserved favor. It's a gift of grace. And um, it's also related to the word, I'm quite sure, for the the uh, bonus, the, the bonus that was given to the Roman soldier when an emperor died, usually violently, and was replaced by another one. The new emperor would give them a nice bonus, uh, to make sure they liked him. I don't think God has to do that. But I thought that was kind of interesting. The, the gift of God is eternal life. The charisma 
of God is eternal life. Doesn't have to do it, but he does it because he loves us. All right, let's go to phones. Why don't you ask me a little easy question? Will you answer it? A tiny one. Patricia, you got a tiny question for me? What can I do for you? <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, my question is, at the beginning of Mass, when um, the priest usually says, let us call to mind our sins, um, mm-hmm. I've heard a priest say, let us call to mind our shortcomings or the times we've fallen short. Are they allowed to well, change the words? No, no, they're not. What do you mean they? We. We are not allowed to change the, the words. I noticed, I, but I changed the word today at Mass when I said Mass at, at St. Thomas in Freeport because I was, I, 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 they keep changing the words on us, so I... I, I said the word from the old version of the canon, and then I thought, oops, I said the wrong word. But it was inadvertent. But if he's really thinking shortcomings, you know, hamartia is a Greek word for sin. And what it really means is to miss the target. So a shortcoming would be a valid translation, maybe. But I, it means sins. There's a moral implication. Shortcomings doesn't have the moral implication. So he's kind of going easy on himself and the congregation. And you're right, a priest may not change the words of the Eucharist. That's very clear in all the documents that, that a priest may not change the words of the prayers of the Holy Eucharist. Um, he yeah, I just feel like we don't want to hurt people's feelings. Yeah, and we, we that's the problem with us priests. We like to be liked, and we've got a very tough job, and we need to tell people, well, I hope you like me, but you're sinning. And we don't want to do that. Uh, some of us do. That's <laughs> even worse. But, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. Priest has no right to change it. And if a priest significantly changes it to the point where you're getting a little crazy, what you have the right to do is to say, Father, I have the right to the Roman Catholic Mass, not to the Mass that you wrote. Um, you know, I'd go light on that, but, you know, shortcomings... If he were to change the words of the canon significantly, or the con- God forbid, the words of consecration, then then, and I mean that God forbid, he does. Then then, you got a serious situation. So you know, um, you pick the hill you want to die on, and you know, the, the, to put up with it. But you're right, a priest, a priest. It's an arrogance on our part, on the part of us clergy, to take on ourselves the new and improved. Uh, mass, so we can't improve on it. We shouldn't improve on it. Does that answer your question, Patricia? It does. Thank you very much. God bless. All right. Say a prayer All for right. him. All right. Okay. Thank let's you. go. Let's go to Marlene, Marlene. Uh, in Little Falls. Marlene, what can Hi. I do for you? Hi, Hi, Father. Just, just want to tell you, I, I feel exactly like you. I'm the same, probably the same age as you are. Um, we young. have a son that's a, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <Go> on. <laughs> yeah, anyway, all the things you talk about, I can identify with, but anyway, we, um, we right now, um, have six parishes and we have three priests, but father, it is tough on them. We, um, our son is out in Western Minnesota. He makes 88 miles every Sunday morning to get three masses wow. in, in his three parishes, and uh, they have no Saturday night mass, period. 
Wow. So well, I well. I get really upset when priests when people complain and and I've heard a lot of complaining because there's getting to be a lot of um a lot of priests or a lot of parishes that are clustering and mm-hmm, yeah. fewer and fewer priests. So yeah, yeah they yeah well oh actually God. in terms in terms of the number of people there are not fewer and fewer priests. Cardinal George used to point that out. There really isn't a priest shortage. But the problem That's is right. we have half the priests, we have half the parishes, but we still have two-thirds of the masses we did uh, 30 years ago. And that's right. crazy. And you know, you have mass on a Saturday night for nine or ten people. And, you know, and, oh, driving in Minnesota, that must be very pleasant in, in, uh, in, in January. <laughs> Western Minnesota, uh, yep, it is terrible. Driving in the dark, yeah, the it road. is terrible. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Yeah, I've yeah, been there, dark done that. and, and <laughs> Oh, the deer, yeah, the the suicidal deer that leap in front of you. I mean, I I live now in a rural place, and and uh, you know you have to go in a, in a the road you normally go sixty on. You got to go forty at the most with your brights on, and people don't understand that. Uh, there was a, a priest I knew who had cataracts and glaucoma and kidney stones, and he's up at five in the morning driving thirty forty miles. Uh, um, uh, he didn't last too long. Um, it's it just, you know, we need to look at, well, you can't close my parish, Father. No, we won't close it. But where are you going to get a priest from? You find that out. I mean, a priest is meant, ah, a dear friend of mine, Father Brank, my classmate, makes the point that Benedict and monks took a vow of stability, poverty, chastity, obedience, and stability. They would stay in their monastery. And he said, we diocesan priests in our times, in effect, take a vow of instability. And that's one of the reasons we don't have vocations. Because when when you're a young man and you're in a parish and there is a priest who is respected and loved, and if you feel a calling from the Lord, you think, maybe I could do that. It's not an easy life, but maybe I could do that. You know, people don't see young men and young women don't know their clergy because they're in the car on the way to the next place. So, right. and you, Marlene, right. you know what I'm talking about. Yes, and, I and do, God Father. Bless. I sure do. <laughs> give you my too. very you, best Father. to your son and tell him I'll keep him in yeah. my prayers because because Thank it's you. a valiant work he's doing. And boy, it must be tough on mom <laughs> to watch her yeah, son zipping is. along these roads. Well, may his guardian angels <laughs> yes. go with him, and yours too. God yes. bless you, Marlene. You Thank you, Father. Oi. Yes. God bless. Javier from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Ed is a beautiful town. I've been there a number of times. That's a great part of the world. Javier, what can I do for you? Thank you for taking my call, Father. I just had a question. I heard you talk in the, in the past a little bit about yeah. how God's covenant was with Israel and not the Jews. And I was yeah. looking for a little further in-depth explanation, and I didn't know yeah. if that covenant is extended to the Jews as they're descended from Israel. Oh, of course Israel. it is. Of course it is. And then, yes, they're part of Israel. And also regarding that is just Zechariah eleven fourteen, and also a book recommendation if you have one regarding the subject. Okay. Uh, let's see here. I'm looking at an antique translation. I cut us. Uh, I cut us under my other staff, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Um, the the what that is referring to in Zechariah is uh, the 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 northern tribes which broke away from uh, Judah and Benjamin and in effect Simeon uh, at the time of King Solomon 
But Zechariah was one of the post-exilic prophets, and the people of northern Israel had had mixed in with the the uh, uh, the local Canaanites and with people who had been brought in from exile uh, from other countries, and they had a religion of that had really again become polytheistic. And and when the when the tribe of Judah came back from exile in Babylon, this would be about 500 B.C. Uh, the northern tribes in Samaria who thought of themselves as Israel said, well, welcome home, cousins. And they said, no way, you're not helping us build the temple because you're, you're, not, you're unclean. You're not worshiping the one God. So that's what that verse is, breaking the bond between Jude and Israel. No, it, the covenant of Israel extends to the Jews because the Jews are part of Israel. The point is, so are we. We claim to be part of Israel by being grafted in, St. Paul says, uh, uh, like like a branch is grafted into a fruit tree. And, and so, you know, the covenant, you know, people talk about well, the, the covenant with the, the Christian covenant, the covenant with Christ supersedes and annuls the first covenant. I don't believe that because the first covenant, God doesn't end his covenants. The first covenant uh, um, though we do read in, I think, the letter of the Hebrews about the death of of the testator ends the covenant. But, but the covenant with Israel, which includes the Jews, the tribe of Judah, simply was, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. And I don't think anyone can dispute, looking at history, that the tribe of Judah, in our times called the Jews, has a unique relationship to God. Uh, they have been the, the, uh, one of the great sources of our culture and certainly of our, our religious understanding. Uh, that didn't end. They're, they're still his people. But the covenant that God made on Sinai with, uh, uh, with the, the house of Israel doesn't promise life after death. It doesn't promise the radical forgiveness of sins that Christ gave us on the cross. It doesn't... Uh, promise resurrection that's those things are nowhere mentioned in the torah except very obliquely so the covenant with the jews uh, which is essentially the covenant with israel still stands but as saint was we read the letter of the hebrews we have better promises through christ does that answer your question javier yes and so the covenant is essentially fulfilled correct and it's open to the new covenant yeah. is open to israel and, and judah Oh sure, yeah, and anyone okay. by accepting Jesus as Messiah as, as and Lord can enter into the new covenant. Jews are not. In fact, is the early church was mostly people who we would have called Jews. So I hope that helps, Javier. And uh, you live in a beautiful part of the world up there in the high country. God bless you. Thanks for calling. Thank you. I'd love to have Let's, you back. Well, it's a great place. Let's go to Jake in St. Paul, Minnesota. Jake, what can I do for you? We just have a minute. Okay, uh, thanks very much for taking my call. I, is rather, I have like a rather quotidian question. I was just wondering, like, to what extent, if any, is it disrespectful to the idea of like a sacramental marriage to be the best man in a secular wedding? If they're both free to marry, if they, if neither of them have been married before, and they're both free to marry, you may participate in that wedding. We respect the weddings of non-Catholics as as uh, covenantal. Uh, if that's their intention. So, yeah, that's not a problem. But if one of them is an ex-Catholic, one of them has been married a few times, that's a problem. But Drew is coming up, no problems. Mm-hmm.